In, um, in Matthew 5, um, there's a passage that tells us, we've looked at it before, um, there's a passage that tells us in verse 16, in the same way let your light shine before others, so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. This is right after Jesus has told us we are the light of the world, even though also in John we find out he is the light of the world. So again, that makes sense because we are his ambassadors. We represent him um, in that way. And so, um, but that made me want to pause for a second and, <clears throat> and communicate a couple of things that are kind of cool about um, some things for us to give thanks for that God has done in our presence that we can give him um, glory for that we also He's, he has allowed us to be a part of that we've gotten to accomplish um, in that way. So our, our church is very much so involved in various ministries that are what you might call like ministries to the fatherless. Um, in some cases, the motherless as well. But it's, it's ministry to, um, for example, in the foster and adoption world. Our, our church has a lot of connections in that world and in that process. And in, um, many, many of us in this church have fostered and or are fostering or adoption, adopting and all that. Um, it's, a, it's a great, really cool, powerful ministry. Um, uh, in fact, um, we also, at every stage along the way, whether it's the prevention of and recovery from abortion, um, we have ministries that are engaged there that come alongside people in grief. Um, we, we have a ministry that we partner with that brings in um, uh, unwanted pregnant girls. And again, that's not, the pregnancy is not unwanted. The girls are unwanted, um, largely often because they are pregnant, um, whether that's out of the trafficking industry or from their homes or whatever. Um, we are also partner with um, For the Silent, and uh, alas, we've talked about them the last few weeks, and uh, in fact, we were a part of their fundraising efforts, and recently they, at their um, most recent event, their fundraiser, they raised over $118,000 um, to help get, get um, ladies out of uh, exploitation situations. And in fact, um, Cameron, our own Cameron Acock was the lead fundraiser in regards to that. And uh, so that's kind of fun. A number of ladies in our church are part of that. Um, in fact, here's what I'd love to do. So the East Texas Orphan Care, um, they're out there today. If this is, they, they, are, they are part of the coordinating effort to bring these different ministries in communication with each other. And so um, uh, we're excited about that. We do Roy Flavie Kids Camp track. In fact, in order to do these good deeds, to, live, to shine, let our light shine so that others can see it, if you're involved in any of those ministries or volunteered in any of those ministries that I just referenced, or if you foster or adopt or have fostered or adopted, or again, part of one of those ministries, would you stand so that we can let this light shine? So if you're part of one of those, fostering or adopting, or you have Royal Family Kids Camp or Track, you've been a part of that, um, or with East Texas Orphans Care, um, some of you aren't standing. Like I'm actually seeing people who I know are involved in these ministries and they're not standing. So this is a pretty good showing. Thank you, guys. This is a, for our church, this is a big part of our heart. And so you may not be thinking about, um, we have gone, we have sent missionary groups overseas to be involved in these various kind of ministries. This is a, this is a big part of who we are. Um, our ministries that are connected to um, the sacredness, uh, the sanctity of life, um, from, from conception on. Um, and so that we want to be engaged at every level with this and, and, and um, engage with these. <coughs> with that in mind, um, I also want to take a second and reference. <clears throat> it is a, though we can all complain about it, um, and do, um, the, the fallacies and, and, and failures of our nation and of our government and all that kind of stuff and the, the shortcomings that is all certainly there and will continue, by the way, to be there. And that's, that's not going anywhere. Those, those, they may switch out. 
There will always be problems there. Um, and yet, that being said, there are, it's, it's pretty shocking when you consider history and even the world as it is today that we can so freely gather here in front of everybody and proclaim why we're gathering here and, and be involved in ministries like this, some of which are politically very unpopular nowadays. Um, and we can do that with, with really with almost no fear at all, uh, certainly not fear that, that somehow the, the authorities are going to come in and shut us down or arrest us or anything like that. And, and so though we always give glory to God and God alone, I do think God uses us to answer these prayers as well. And so one of the reasons, maybe the frontline reason for why we have these is because of those who have served um, in the military. And, and so if you are a, a veteran um, of any of the branches of military, um, would you stand so that we can tell you thank you um, for serving and for helping make sure and defending these freedoms that we get to experience and express. Please, all of you stand. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we've, we very much so uh, recognize and graciously, and the verse that always comes to my mind when I think about Veterans Day is Philippians 1, 3, um, which says, I, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. And um, uh, this is a, for, for all of us, I hope that we are going out of our way to say thank you for those who serve, no matter what the capacity. Um, and honestly, in so many ways, purchasing for the rest of us the option not to um, is one of the many things that they have purchased for us, is that we get to focus um, our ministries and our mindset and our education, our training on other things because they chose to study war. And so we do appreciate that. I want to catch you up on where we are because you know, the, the, um, we, we've spent almost as much time in John chapter 7 and starting into 8 as Jesus did at the Feast of Booths. And so um, we, want to, we want to give ourselves, I want to catch you up a little bit. So if you remember, what happened is in John chapter 7, John, Jesus goes late to the Feast of Booths. He would have come to Jerusalem and there would have been these little tabernacle, temple, mini temple tent thingies all over the place. Um, every kind of bare ground, every bit of bare ground, including rooftops, would have had these little tabernacle thingies built on them. And, um, and they would have been all over the place. As far as the eye could see, hundreds of thousands of people would have come into Jerusalem from around Israel and beyond um, to experience this. While there, there's all types of different ceremonies that go on. Two of the most potent ones are the water ceremony, which we've talked about, where they go and dip water from the pool of Siloam. Um, and then there's also the, um, the lighting ceremony where they put these giant menorahs in the women's court in the temple. And, and that's what's been going on. Jesus was the talk of the town before he showed up because all the people from Galilee who showed up and the people who have been in Jerusalem the year before would have said, man, this, this guy's a crazy dude and there's all kinds of stuff going on around him. So he's already the topic. Then he shows up and when he shows up, he declares himself, John 7, 37 and 38, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So here you have Jesus proclaiming himself to be the source of the Holy Spirit, the source of the living water, um, here in the temple in front of everybody. And so um, that's how he kind of starts his time in the, this, this just... It's like gasoline on the fire that's already spreading about Jesus. Who is this Jesus character? Well, now he's declared himself as something special. So the, the, the baiting still goes on. Is he the Messiah? If it was the Messiah, aren't, is the Messiah supposed to be from Bethlehem? This guy was from Nazareth, as far as we know. They don't, they don't know the story about him being born in Bethlehem. And so 
They're, they're having these debates. We don't know where he's from, or we do know where he's from, and, and we don't know what to think about him. And then the people are going, well, wait a minute. Usually when people declare themselves like this, the Romans either start persecuting them, or the Jews have them arrested, and no one's doing that. No one's arresting this guy. Why not? Do they think maybe he's the Messiah too? What's going on? The Pharisees and the religious leaders are fighting among themselves as well. Is he the Messiah? Is he not? Do we care? Do we care if he's the Messiah, if he's going to take away our power or draw the, the attention or the wrath of, of Rome? And so, and so there's all this debate. He is, he is what everyone is talking about. As people are meeting to have their meals and their tabernacles and their little booths, what they're talking about is Jesus Christ. All over town. That's what's going on. Verse 43, so there was this great division among the people over him. And then in 8.12, again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness but will have the light of life. Now he has claimed, this, this one feels even more divine. Now he's not just claiming to be a special person, but the light of the world? That's, that's pretty significant. That sounds like somebody's claiming something divine about themselves. And he snuck a little I am statement in there before. Was that on purpose? Did he mean to do that? Was he, is he drawing our attention to this? By the end of chapter eight, you'll know the answer to that question. But at this point, they're really wrestling through. Who is he? What does he claim? He claims these amazing things. He calls upon the witness of the Father. They want more. They want answers. They want to know who will stand up for him. They want to know who will speak for him. In 8, 17 and 18, he says, In your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am one who bears testimony about myself, and the Father who sent me bears a witness about me as well. This is a cool thing. So Jesus, Christianity, one of the interesting things about the Christian faith is that it is a rational faith. It's a faith based in argument, based in a rational argument. You should be able to sit down and discuss step by step by step why it is rationally necessary to believe that Jesus is who he claimed he is. There have been millions of pages of books written about this. It is not some close your eyes, um, hold your nose, and decide to believe. The kind of faith that Christianity pushes is not the kind of faith that is a uh, Mark Twain, believing in what you know ain't so type of faith. It is a faith that says, no, no, don't believe it unless it's true. Test it, try it, evaluate it, engage with it. That's what this is. We'll talk more about that. That being said, it is also a legal truth. You can discuss it at the legal level. And throughout the history, lawyers and journalists have tested out the claims of Jesus from a legal way or from a, from a testing of witnesses way. It still works. It's also an intuitive faith. So there's a gut level engagement with it. Many people focus on that, a mystical and gut level and heart level engagement with it. There are emotions that go with this engagement. And, and here's what's wild. Here's part of why that's important is that we're all wired differently about that. Some of us prefer to engage with faith at the intellectual level. Good news, I have a, I have a religion for you. It's called Christianity. Some of you say, no, I, I just, I'm an evidence-based person. I'm a, I'm a science-based person. I want evidence. I want argument. I want good. I have a religion for you. It's called Christianity. But for some people, you go, no, no, I, I want miracles, and I want poetry, and I want, I want a gut-level feeling of an engagement with an all, all, almighty God. Well, good news. Every religion is called Christianity, and, and all of them are founded in a relationship. So just like all other relationships, it's all of those. You probably don't have many intimate relationships that are only one of those. Your relationship with your spouse or your kids. Like you might go, well, my professor, that's all intellectual. Right, not a very intimate relationship. 
So there's more to this. We, we engage at all levels with this. And we change throughout our lifetime. And each of us engage with it. So at sometimes, I, I very much so, when I doubt or when I struggle or when I wrestle, I need to engage with this at the level of, hmm, but what do the facts say? What, what, are, these, what are these questions? How come they can't be answered in this way? Or, or, when, I'm, or, or when, I, when my intellect is failing me or I'm tired or I'm sleepy or, I, or whatever else and I feel that sense of, that, we, that we experience at times, that intuition of knowing there's something more than this. This isn't all of it. This, this, this world thing that we live in with all the things that go with it, it's not sufficient. This isn't, at the gut level, I know there's more than this. All of those things are engaged with simultaneously in this faith. Jesus has done this. He's gonna continue doing this throughout the book of John. We go all the way to John 21. He's still doing this every step along the way engaging with this. There's a lot of answers we don't like. Um, we'll, get, we'll get to have more of this conversation. But so I've caught you up kind of, we caught up with the action. Jesus says, I am the one who bears witness about myself and the father who sent me bears witness about me. So we catch up with where we are in verse 19. They said to him, therefore, well, where is your father? And Jesus answers them. Now, this is what's wild. Every commentary, so commentaries, I, I reference commentaries periodically. Commentaries are just what people have written over the last few thousand years about Scripture. Um, for example, biblical commentaries are about the Bible. They're kind of cliff notes for those more intellectual and uh, academic of you from, from back when high school, right? They're the cliff notes um, for those of us who aren't quite smart enough to follow it just by reading it ourselves. Um, and so that's why I depend on them. And so all of the commentaries I read were very clear. The Pharisees know exactly who he's claiming is his father. There's, there's not, they're, they're playing dumb here. And so they're kind of playing dumb with Jesus, and he's going to make them look even more dumb. So they say, um, uh, where is your father? And Jesus answers them, oh, that's right, I forgot. You don't know my father. That's pretty painful if you're a religious leader in the temple of Jerusalem to have Jesus turn this around on you when you go, who is your father? And he goes, right, okay, forgot. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know the father also. And by the way, notice, this is, this is their home turf. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. No one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. So the treasury is in the woman's court. The temple has a major, the largest area by far is called the Gentile court. It's where anyone could come. It is a stone's throw from the temple itself. But then there's a set of walls that only Jews are allowed past. And there's an area where all Jews are allowed. And then there's a much, much smaller area where only Jewish men are allowed. And then there's the temple proper where only the priests are allowed. And then there's the Holy of Holies where only one priest is allowed and only one time a year. So that's how it's set up. So the main business of the temple outside of the sacrifices themselves are done in the women's court. That's where the treasury is. These probably giant brass-shaped kind of bells, trumpets, where people throw money in um, for their temple tax or to give donations or whatever. And there's all kinds of stories about how this was abused. And we see it when Jesus talks about somebody sounding the trumpet. That doesn't literally mean that they're sounding the trumpet as in they blow a trumpet before they give money. It's that they make sure that their money makes lots of noise as it splashes into the brass mouthpiece of these uh, the treasury here. In fact, there's, there's stories of people who would, get, on the way to the temple, that part of what the money changers did is you brought in your single big $10 coin and you changed it for pennies so that when you poured your money into the trumpet, it would make lots of noise for a long time and people would know you're like, I'm making all this. So people would be like, wow, he's really putting a lot in to show off for people. Jesus is not pleased, by the way, with that. He's, that's, he's not impressed by that. 
Um, and so that's, that's what's going on here. This is where the giant menorahs would have been. Maybe they're even still here at the time Jesus is talking in John chapter 8. So you have these, maybe these still giant menorahs set up there as well. This happening right there. So you go, of course, as a good Jewish audience, you automatically go like, well, why is no one arresting this guy? Oh my gosh. I mean, he's proclaiming himself now in the, in the women's court, not even just in the Solomon's, uh, under the Solomon's roof out in the Gentile court. He's now in the court of women declaring these things about himself. Someone ought to arrest this guy. Why aren't they? Well, John has the same answer he always does. When people aren't arresting Jesus when you would expect them to, and that is because it wasn't time yet. And we will get there. This is John. John is setting us up for the fact that this isn't the time. When the time comes, it's going to happen, and it's going to happen quickly. Um, Jesus is going to eventually pull the pin on the grenade, and things are going to count down very quickly to his crucifixion. But his hour had not yet come. So as they play dumb, he makes them look dumb. He and John are repeating themselves. If, you, if these verses sound familiar, it's because they're almost identical from the last chapter. So here he is. His hour had not come. He will, no one will arrest him until the sovereign will of God calls for it, or rather until Jesus sets it up. So verse 21, he's still talking with them. So he says to them, I'm going away, and you will seek me, and you will die in your sin, and where I'm going, you cannot come. He tells them up front, you're going to miss this. You don't understand what I'm talking about. You're not getting me. You're not following this. You're going to miss it. In this, he's declaring himself a prophet. So let me just warn you, I'm not talking about the spiritual gift of prophecy here. The spiritual gift of prophecy just means to proclaim something. It's one of the gifts that God gives his people. But the title, prophet, it's, it's always fascinating to me that people are, ever want that job title. That you see it kind of sometimes in the, in the um, name it and claim it world of Christianity and kind of the heretical, um, uh, financially improving your life side of Christianity um, that very often uh, it comes in, the um, health and wealth teaching, that often those religious leaders will call themselves prophets. And that's always interesting to me because I, I'm, it makes me wonder whether they've ever read the job description in the Bible. Prophet doesn't work out well for the prophet. It doesn't ever work out well for the prophet. It is never a positive experience for the prophet to be a prophet. That's not something that anyone would want. It, God, God claimed, calls people, and almost without fail, when you get to see their calling, when he calls them, they go like, I, I really think I'm not the person for the job. I think maybe one of these other people ought to do this. I think, I think maybe it's a, Isaiah's job description and Jesus here saying like, here I am proclaiming myself and you won't listen. It's almost straight from when God calls Isaiah and he says, Isaiah, I'm going to make you a prophet to your people and they're not going to listen to you. In fact, eventually they're just going to kill you. All right, ready? Go. That's, that's God's like motivational poster for his prophets. It's like, hey, they'll hate you until they kill you. Hang that up somewhere, right? They're going to ignore you. They're going to, they're going to revile you. Or worse, he may call you to live out a prophetic message. Hey, Hosea, why don't you marry a prostitute? That sounds nice. Hey, I've got an idea for you, Ezekiel. Why don't you lay on one side for months of your life? And when I'm done with you laying on that side, why don't you turn over and lay on the other side for months of your life? Is this a job description anyone wants? I wouldn't think so. There's nothing about this. Jesus is declaring him, connecting himself here to the prophets. I'm just like they are. I talk to you people just like the prophets spoke to your forefathers. They didn't listen to them. You're not going to listen to me. And here's what's going to happen. You will, I am going away and you will seek me. You will die in your sin where I'm going. You cannot come. 
Now, this last year, we had one of the better youth camp speakers that I've heard in a long, long time and uh, at camp this summer. And, and one of the cool things that this, camp, this youth camp speaker said was <clears throat> that we have this nasty habit of, of identifying ourselves with the good guys in every biblical story. And we always need to be reminded to take a second and identify with the bad guys in the story. So we, we read this story, and I do too, and I get excited about Jesus, and Jesus outsmarting the Pharisees, and he's got these great things to say, and, and all this type of stuff. And I, I find myself you know, like, yeah, I'm on Jesus' side, because I am, and that's, that's the truth of it. But there's something to learn as well by saying, but am I missing it? I mean, am I, am I missing this too? Am I missing the, this idea of Jesus being the light of the world? Does my marriage look like Jesus is the light of the world? Does my parenting look like Jesus is the light of the world? Does the way I relate to the person who cuts me off in traffic or who overcooks my steak or who whatever, do I, does that look like Jesus is the light of the world? Do I live then as though Jesus is the light of the world? When I'm facing midterm elections, do I live like Jesus is the light of the world? Do I, do I live as though Jesus is, that, that what the Holy Spirit is is a well of life springing up in me, overflowing into other people's lives? Or a, Am I a little more of a Pharisee than I would like to think? So as we continue to study through John chapter 7 and 8, by the way, and 9 and 10, I want you to be aware. I want you to be looking out for the inner Pharisee here. Be watching for the Pharisee inside of you too. What are we missing? These guys are going to miss it. Their city is going to fall. Their temple is going to be torn down stone by stone. Their way of life is going to end in just a few years after Jesus is saying this. By the time they realize death is coming, it will be too late for most of them. By the time they realize they need a Savior, it will be too late. By the time they realize they missed the Messiah, it will be too late. They will die in their sin. I'm going to come back to that. And by the way, all of that is going to happen. All of that is going to happen just in the next few years for the Jewish people. So the Jews said, is he going to kill himself? Since he says, where I'm going, you cannot come. I think John puts this little sentence in here to show us a couple of things. One, they're kind of getting it, but they're not really. They realize he's going somewhere, and he's talking about death, and they realize he's talking about something special about death, and they, they could tell he's talking about that he's in control of the fact that he's going to die. But they're, they're still struggling through, what does this mean? So he clarifies with them. It may be a slightly different audience now that has shown up, but maybe not, maybe the same people. They've completely misunderstood him, but not in the way, they, not in the way that maybe you think. So he says to them, okay, let's try this again. You are from below. I am from above. Another I am statement. You are of this world. I am not of this world. I told you you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. Now, this is kind of cool because even though Jesus says they're going to die in their sins, the truth is we're going to see at the very end of today that some of them aren't going to. This is always the case. People who know God well know this about God. Here's one of the cool things about God, if you know him well, is that there is always a chance to repent until it's over. That right up until the very last second, there's still a chance to repent. It's what Jonah was so annoyed about God about. 
You know, the story of Jonah is that, is that Jonah gets a word from God. Jonah, one of God's, another one of God's prophets who gets a job who really he hates. So God speaks to Jonah and says, hey, go to the Assyrians, the capital of Assyria, Nineveh, and you tell them that I'm going to destroy them in just a few days. And Jonah, being a good Jew, hates the Assyrians. The Assyrians have persecuted and downtrodden and enslaved the Jews for a long time. He hates the Assyrians. And so God says, you know what? I want you to go warn the Assyrians that I'm going to wipe them out. Because in just a few days, I'm going to destroy them. And Jonah says, yeah, you know, you say that. You say you'll destroy them. But I know you too well. I know that if they convert, if they repent, if they turn from their wicked ways, you're not going to destroy them. So that's why Jonah flees. Jonah's not afraid of God. And Jonah's not afraid of Nineveh. He's not afraid of the Assyrians. He's afraid God won't wipe out the Assyrians. And he wants them wiped out. So that's why he runs. The opposite direction from Assyria is where he goes. He doesn't want to be anywhere near them because he doesn't want them to actually hear the truth. They might accidentally, as unlikely as it is, they might accidentally repent and then God will let, let loose, will, will let off, let them off the hook from being absolutely destroyed like he promised, like he said he was going to. And by the way, that's exactly what happens. And Jonah's mad about it at the end of the book. He's still mad about it. He's sitting up there waiting for the show, watching the days slip by. He's putting little X's on his calendar. He's got a big smiley face on 40 days. And flames around the smiley face. This is the day. And he's so mad when that day comes and goes and God doesn't destroy the Ninevites. He's so mad about it. Sometimes it even makes us mad how much grace God has. How dare he save somebody that I don't approve of? How, how dare he give them another chance? How do, we find ourselves offended in the same way. This is what Jesus says. You're going to die in your sins. I mean, of course, except for the few of you who believe, you won't. But the rest of you will die in your sin. There's always that way of escape. It's, it's, it's nuts about God how he's like this. So he clarifies with them. He reveals the truth. This is what he does. This is the way it is. Some of you have seen the shirts that say, like, science doesn't care what you believe or facts don't care about how you feel. And, and here's what's cool. Of course that's true. Truth doesn't care what we feel. Truth doesn't care what we believe. Not in regards to truth. It's still truth. If you don't like it, believe it, know it, feel it, it doesn't care. That's the truth. That's, the, that's, the, that's what truth means. Any truth, no matter how it is uncovered, that is the case. Jesus Christ is sharing something with us that we may not like. This is one of the tough things about being a Christian is there's a lot of disappointing things about being a Christian. I don't know if you've experienced them yet. You've been a Christian very long. You've experienced this. There's a lot of things that, that are that's disappointing. They're going to let you down. I mean, life is hard. And it doesn't suddenly get easy because you become a Christian. In fact, sometimes it gets harder. Jesus even tells us that we get to John 14. You're going to love how, how honest Jesus is about this. This is still a world where people suffer. And, and, they, and they, they get horrible diseases, even children. Where millions of children are, are executed in the name of convenience. Where, where people get sick and die and they get, have miscarriages where people are, are abused, sometimes by their own family members or their own friends, time after time. Man, that's hard. That's not hard for you. You're not thinking about it. That is tough for us as Christians. And it's disappointing that we don't get to see God step in and just zap everybody that we don't approve of and everything we don't like. Seems like that would happen. That's hard for us. Now, I'll just give you a little, a little insight. 
The other side of the coin doesn't have a better answer. See, the, the atheist side of things, you can go back and, and hear me talk about this with David Smalley about a year ago now. We talked about this. When I said, so what's your answer to the problem of suffering? What do you have? I mean, they have the same suffering and the same diseases and the same abuse and the same awful things that happen. It's, it's, if, if life is so hard and so torturous, and it can be, but atheists continue to have children. Why do they do that? That seems like just the ultimate evil. That's like giving birth to a child in a concentration camp the way they interpret the problem of evil. I mean, it's awful, awful. Life can be so hard, can it? Why would you want to bring a child into that? Well, our answer as Christians is because we believe there is an almighty God who does know what he's doing. And someday, maybe it's going to make sense to us, he will redeem all of it. The atheist, the atheist has no better answer. They just have nothing there's no redemption. There's no, there's no answer to these questions. We don't have the answer case by case, but we can have an answer big picture. We have a God who is a God of justice and truth, who engages with these things. And sometimes we even get to see it before. Sometimes we get to see like, wow, look at what happened because of that suffering. That's amazing. But we don't always know that. We don't always get to see it. But we can believe that there's going to come a day when that will be explained. Listen, that, I don't know about you, that answer doesn't do a lot for my heart. It's the truth. As Christian, those who are Matrix fans, Christianity is very much so a red pill, blue pill kind of religion. You want, the, you want the hard answers and the truth, or would you rather just comfort yourself with something that's not true? So I, I hope that means you're someone who's willing to engage with it. And Jesus is revealing something that's not fun here. One of the things he's going to reveal is this idea of sin, and we don't like the idea of sin. Sin is uncomfortable. Sin is unpopular. Sin's not something that we like. So we want to in regards to understanding this picture of sin. There's two different ways of understanding sin. One is what's called in Christian doctrine, original sin, Adam's sin. So when we elect a representative um, for house or for the Senate or, or for president, we're saying they represent us. That's what we're asking them to do. You're not allowed and I'm not allowed to just walk out onto the Senate floor in Washington, D.C., we're not allowed to walk into a congressional meeting and say like, hey, I got some thoughts. I'd like to share my thoughts. They're like, no, no, you elected somebody to share your thoughts. That's what it means to have a representative. They represent you. You didn't do it. They're going to do it for you. See, that's what Adam was for us. Adam was a representative for mankind, and he blew it. Now, now don't get on a high horse. You would have blown it too, and so would have I. All of us would have. That's what makes him a good representative is it just like us, Adam sinned? If you doubt that, just look at your own life. All the, all the perfect people are, are, can leave and you don't ever have to come back to church. You're going to mess it up for the rest of us anyway. So clearly you don't fit in here. So all the perfect people, everyone who's not committed any sin. So the truth is, if you're uncomfortable with the idea of original sin, that's fine. Just be responsible for your sins. You still have the same lack of total hope. You still got nothing. But we believe in original sin. A child is conceived already tainted by sin. If you don't, again, if you don't believe that, then we have some openings in the children's department on Sunday mornings that you can work with some of these little sinners um, that, will, that will, some of that they will love you except when they hate you. That's a, take something away from them. Just, you just watch. This is something that is a part of Christian doctrine and vital to understand and believe. We are born dead in our sins. Romans 5 is really Paul's treatise on this concept. I'm going to read a few of the verses. Therefore, 
Just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. There you go. 5.15 says, but the free gift is not like that trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So see, we have, like the Senate, we have two representatives, not just one. And the work of the second representative is canceling out the work of the first representative. The first representative, his free gift to us is sin and death. Thanks, Adam. But the representative, the gift of the second representative is life and freedom and grace. 519, for by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now again, if you're uncomfortable, it's okay. All of us have also sinned as individuals. We bear the mark of both types of sin, the original sin and the personal sin. For all have sinned, it says in Romans, earlier in Romans 3.23, all have sinned, and we fall short of the glory of God, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Notice, the original sin, the sin of Adam, that your representative, that my representative blew it for all of us, just like you and I would have. He blew it, and there's a solution. There's a way of escape. It's the second representative. And each of us blows it. Each of us sins against ourself. We have offended God. We have damaged ourselves. We are destroying our own lives. We have taken a stand at times against morality, even if, if nothing else inside of our own heads, even if we won't do it in action, which just makes us hypocrites. By the way, that's not an improvement. So the truth is we are guilty of our own sins individually. We bear the guilt of the sin of the race of mankind as a group. Good news. There's a redeemer. There's someone who came to take care of those sins. Belief in him is what does it. We can agree with the truth. That's all that confession means is to agree with the truth. We can turn from that. That's all that repentance means. We can come on board. That's what it means. We can accept the truth. That's what conversion means. All these ritualistic christian words that we use, they're not magic. They just mean something. We can walk away from one thing and choose something different. We can walk out of the darkness and into the light. We can accept the free gift that he offers us. So Jesus has proclaimed all this through his language. And in verse 25, they say, so who are you? Now, in Oklahoma... Uh, Oklahoma City National Memorial and Museum is a, is a statue called Jesus Wept. Um, it's a beautiful statue. It's really cool. You're going to see it in my sermons moving forward on a regular basis because though I know that the sculptor intended for Jesus to be weeping, that's not what it looks like he's doing in my mind. Could you pull up that picture? <laughs> so I think it looks like Jesus is facepalming. And I think Jesus spent a lot of his time, go ahead, one more I think. I think Jesus spent a lot of his time with his face in his hands. That is not meant in any way to be irreverent. I think anyone who's going to hang out with people very long, and Jesus did a lot of hanging out with people, who loves those people, so he's not gonna get enraged, he's not gonna yell and scream and be abusive when they don't get him, and they never, ever get him. 
Never. He's going to say that in a second. I mean, you think about the fact that not even one of his disciples showed up at the resurrection. Not one. None of them believed him that he was coming back. Not one understood him. I've said before, I think this is the face that Jesus had when he stepped out of the tomb. He stepped out of the tomb. I'm back. Really? Nobody. Nope. Like, I think, I think, I mean, you read the disciples and I, I just, again, this is not meant in any way to be irreverent. This is, this is the reality of Jesus Christ trying to love us and people who are a lot like us. So yeah, you'll see this one again and again and again. It may just flash up over, like when we get to those passages like this to go up there. Really? Who are you? Jesus has just spent the last two chapters telling who he was over and over again. They, so Jesus tells them, just what I've been telling you. From the beginning, I have so much to say to you and so much to judge, but he who sent me is true, so I declare to the world what I've heard from him. <coughs> I'm just telling you what God told me to tell you. I am exactly what I have told you from day one. <coughs> There's no secret here. He has declared so far in the hearing of them or, or other audiences that he's the light of the world, that he is the living water, that he is from the Father, that he is the bread of life, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Messiah, and the fulfillment of Scripture, and that's just in John 1 through 7, just in front of audiences. He has declared himself these things, and most of them in these people's presence, and they're saying, so now exactly what do you claim to be? It's John tells us generously in verse 27, they didn't understand that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Now, they understood what he was saying. They just didn't, as Jesus said, they didn't get it. And they were going to die in their sins. That's the situation. Now, do we, by the way, inner Pharisee, do we live as though he is the light of the world and the living water and from the Father and the bread of life and the Son of Man and the Son of God and the Messiah and the fulfillment of Scripture? Do we? Do we live in that kind of freedom and that? Now, speaking about the Father, I'll just take one second and reference this. I love to reference this any chance I can. Remember that when we talk about fathers, all a father is, is a representative of God. A good representative or a bad one. Uh, uh, do we exemplify the paternal traits of God? That's a good father, someone who represents the paternal traits of God. A good mother is someone who represents the maternal traits of God. Jesus, when he gets worked up in Matthew 23, and he is worked up in Matthew 23, um, in verse 9 but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have a teacher and you are brothers. And call no one your father on earth, because you have a father who is in heaven. That's the, don't, don't miss this. In the end, all of us are just kind of sub-fathers who are fathers. There's really only one father, and that is the father who is in heaven. And my job as a father is to make sure when my children catch on to that, when they realize, wait a minute, you're not God. You're not capital father, capital F father. That's not you. There's a different one. I don't want them to have to do a 180 like some people have to do. I want them to be able to go like, oh, oh, that's the real father. I mean, no one's going to nail it perfectly. Even if we involve lots of other spiritual fathers in their lives, no one can color in everything that God is. But, but we want it to be as simple a thing as possible. That's the father that they're talking about here. So Jesus said, when you have lifted up the son of man, then you will know that I am he. And that I do nothing of my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. This terminology of lifted up. We'll see that more and more. We'll get to it a few more times. He's already referenced it in John 3. 
So we know exactly what he's talking about. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. So the story here, very quickly, is that, is that, is that the time the people of Israel had a complaining problem, um, kind of like we do. They're unhappy with the water. They're unhappy with the food. They're unhappy with the living conditions. They're always unhappy with something. And so, and so one of the times that, that they do this, God sends serpents, snakes, poisonous snakes, venomous snakes in um, to go in and, and bite them. And they do. The snakes that are venomous come in and bite them. And many die. And, and as they turn back to God, God says, take a, take a pole and put a snake on the top of it and raise this pole up in the center of the, center of the camp. And when you, when you get bitten by a snake, turn and look at that snake. And just looking at it will make the venom leave you. And you'll live. It's, a, it's obviously a pretty amazing miracle that God sets up here. Well, Jesus is connecting himself to that thing that was lifted up on a pole. And clearly he's talking about his crucifixion and he's telling the total truth. Remember, no one got him. So when Jesus is lifted up, raised up on a stick, raised up on a pole on the cross, and then when he is raised up, lifted up from the dead, and then when he is lifted up, ascended into heaven, and then even to a certain degree, when we lift up his name, these lifting up is what he is known. Clearly he's talking here about the crucifixion. When he is lifted up, they will begin to get it. When he's lifted up again, they will really get it. He, when he's dead and alive again. And by the way, I found myself so jealous of this phrase. I've never really noticed this phrase before. Jealous of this phrase. I always do the things that are pleasing to him. I had never really made that connection before. What a powerful phrase. What would it be like to live in such an intimate relationship with the Father? That through my, if, if I could have perfect obedience, that I never quenched the Holy Spirit, that I lived out perfectly everything God would have me do, that the, the intimate connection that that would mean. That would be such an awesome thing to be able to live in as Jesus was experiencing on earth. Everything he did was pleasing to the Father. What an amazing concept. I love it. I think that is an amazing picture. I, I could spend a lot longer on that. My heart is still wrestling with it. It's an epic thought. But I want to wrap up with this, verse 30. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. Same audience. The religious leaders, the Jews in the women's court, many of them, as they heard this, they were convinced, they were persuaded, and they believed in him. In the Greek, it says what we talked about before. They faithed in him. The active verb, faith. So whatever it is, whatever it is that, that is there between you and being persuaded, they decide to believe that what he says about himself is true, that he is the things that he says he is. And some of them believe, and some of them are persuaded, and presumably some of them don't die in their sin. The natural state of us is in our sin. Just like the natural state of a marriage is divorce, the natural state of life is death. That's the, that's the natural state. If we don't do something to stop it, if we don't put energy into it, if something doesn't change, that's what happens. That shouldn't be strange to us. So to go, I want out of this. I don't want to die in my sin. I want for Jesus Christ to take care of that sin problem. So that's what I want to pray over us. If you've never put your faith in Christ in that way, you've never accepted his free gift of eternal life taking care of that sin problem, I hope you'll do that today. Um, if, you, if you have done that and you say, like, you know what, I'm ready to, 
to come and live out life with other believers. And we had some people join in the first service and he came up and he said it perfectly, perfectly. This is the terminology we'll use. He came up and shook my hand and he said, we're ready to serve as members. Ah, there, you get it. That's, that's what it means. The purpose of being a member is to come and serve. So that's what they said. Excellent. If that's you, if you've already had those conversations with the Welcome Home team and you're ready to say, like, I'm ready to come serve as a member, we'd love to have you. That's what this invitation, this invitation is to ask yourself, looking at the inner Pharisee maybe, how do I need to respond to God's word? How do I need to respond to this community? So I hope, I hope that's what you will do. Stand, if you will, and let's pray. And um, then we've got a few things we need to take care of, and, and we'll do that in just a second. Um, by the way, if, if you do decide to join today, bonus, you get to vote today. Um, I know that's a big draw for a lot of you, that you really want to get your, uh, get your voice heard, so you can vote today. Um, let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the power of your word, um, whether it is sung, whether it is heard or studied, Lord, whether it's lived out in the way we greet each other and give. And Lord, I pray you would guide us. I pray that you would lead us through the power of your spirit. Um, Father, is it too forward to ask that everything we do would be pleasing to you? That would be the prayer. It's beyond me. But Lord, I pray that you would make that more true in my life every day. Thank you, Father. And we ask all of this in your son's magnificent name. Amen. John. Mm-hmm.